You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. This morning, I want to invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to turn and open to the Gospel of Matthew, where we are going to be looking in Matthew chapter 10, specifically verses 26 through 31. We are continuing of Jesus and his ministry. This will be maybe unusual given Passion Week for us to continue and going to at a certain point you just have to know when to throw it in. Check. Okay, let's do it this way. Uh like I say, this is not necessarily the text you would expect on Passion Week, but I think it's going to set us up really well for next week as we come together, as we think about really the big question, which is how does the resurrection of Christ change you? In what significant way does it change your life? It ought to. We're going to reflect on that next week, but today chapter 10 in Matthew, verses 26 through 31. Feel free to follow along with me as I read for us. Matthew writes, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. As you probably know, fear is one of the most common human experiences in the world, isn't it? Part of how we know this is simply by taking stock of all of the things that people are afraid of. There are more fears than we could number. Of course, there are the more common fears, things like glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking, or thanatophobia, which is the fear of death, or acrophobia, the fear of heights, or claustrophobia, which is the fear of enclosed spaces, but there are also many other fears, things like the fear of darkness, the fear of needles, the fear of choking, the fear of failure. Yes, the fear of clowns. I know that many of you were probably thinking about that. The fear of dogs, the fear of dentists or doctors or maybe even nurses. No offense to any of you. Sometimes you're feared. There is the fear of marriage. We see that fear at work a lot in our culture as we see people waiting much, much longer to get married. And that goes along with another fear, of course, fear of children. There is also, and we see many companies 
prey on this fear at least once a year, usually around the New Year's. There is the fear of gaining weight. Maybe you didn't realize that the fear of paper is a thing, but it is. Papyrophobia. Add that to your vocabulary. There is the fear of love, the fear of technology, the fear of germs, and of course the list. It could just keep going, right? That said, I'm certain there are fears that some of you have in this room right now that you have never even told someone about because, frankly, you would just feel embarrassed if someone knew. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, approximately 12.5% of adults in the U.S. struggle with a specific phobia. That means 12.5% of people have a fear that genuinely in some significant way, controls their lives and their everyday decisions. You know what it's like to have a fear. It really does control you. You make certain determinations based on that fear. Things you won't do, things you will do, places you will go, places you won't go. 12.5% of people have that kind of a phobia. And maybe this would surprise you, maybe not, but women are actually more likely to experience phobias than men. Did you know that? And I guess that this would support the long-held stereotype that women have an especially high desire for security. Well, now we know why. Women want security because I guess they sense insecurity more frequently. In any case, though, man or woman, we know this. No one enjoys fear, and everyone is shaped and affected by it differently. So for some, they get nauseous. For others, they tremble. Maybe they get shaky knees. Sometimes my eye twitches. Maybe you didn't need to know that. In some cases, people break out in sweats. In many p cases, people develop a rapid heartbeat. Some even pass out in fear or become completely incapacitated. These responses reveal just how debilitating fear can be. And because of this, fear leads to all sorts of disorders. Eating disorders, sleep disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder. Again, the list is long. Therefore, one of the most common questions that people have today is what? How can I overcome fear? How can I overcome it? Well, today, we're going to answer that question, but before we do, let's just think about how we got to this particular subject by looking in our Bibles I hope you're still in Matthew 10. That's where we're going to be. If you get your Bibles open, look at verse 26. Jesus says, Have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. Well, the big question then that we need to start with is what? Who is the them? Who is them referring to? Well, last week, as we observed, we're in an interesting moment in Jesus' ministry, right? Because up to this point, Matthew has pretty much just fully focused on Jesus. And so it's all been about him. And he's been the one that's been out, and he's been teaching and preaching and healing and performing the miracles. All the action has been focused on him. Now, though, come chapter 10, things take a little bit of a turn, right? Because what does Jesus do? He appoints 12 men into ministry he takes 12 men, we know as the 12 disciples, but he appoints them to a very, a very special place of ministry because they are going to be the 
12 apostles. These are going to be the men that Jesus eventually hands the baton of ministry off to after he has been resurrected from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, right? But before they're ready for this, before Jesus leaves them, what does he need to do with these guys? He needs to get them battle ready. He needs to test them. He needs to shape them. He needs to mold them. He needs to make them ready for the time when they will be the foundation of the church and they will be leading this mission. So how does he go about doing this then? Well, as I noted last week, what we see here is really what we could think of as perhaps the first missionary trip of the church. The audience, as we noted, is a bunch of Jews in the area of Galilee, so they're not going very far, right? Uh, they don't have to buy a plane ticket. They don't have to get a passport. Uh, they're going to do it right there in Galilee, and they're going to be doing it to the people that they know very well, those that share their belief system in a sense, right? Those that have a shared culture, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that, um, that's his audience. The command, Jesus says to go proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message Jesus preached, same message John the Baptist preached, and now they're going to go preach it too. And so Jesus says to them, as we looked at last week, I want you to go out, preach the gospel, care for the suffering, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, stay with those who would have you. Oh, but he adds, right, in addition to this, here's something you should probably also know. As you go out and do this, it's not going to be easy. Not even close, because you are going to meet some fierce opposition. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 10. Look in your Bibles, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus says to the disciples, as you go out, this is what you can expect, okay? Because you're my disciples, and I was persecuted, you're going to be persecuted too. And, I, and I'm going to send you out, and there's going to be people who hate you, reject you, slander you, even kill you. Now we know that this does not refer to the immediate situation, because Many of these things don't happen, and they're not going to be drugged before rulers and before synagogues, but certainly we know at some point in their lives this is going to happen. All you have to do is open up to the book of Acts, and every one of these men would die as martyrs with the exception of John, right? He's going to die an old man on the island of Patmos. But Jesus is preparing them, and he says, go out, do this, People aren't going to treat you so kindly. But then as he tells them, just on the heels of telling them all this horrific stuff that's going to happen to them, what does he say? But don't be afraid of those people. Like part of you is going, but didn't you just give them some really, really good reasons to be afraid of those people? Well, certainly he did. But he's saying, don't be afraid of them. Have no fear. And notice all of the times that this command is reiterated. Obviously, we see verse 26, have no fear. Now look at verse 28. What does it say? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
And just after this, we come to the most significant statement in our text, still in verse 26. And what is it? Jesus says, rather, or instead, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So if you're following, Jesus says, fear not man. Again, he says, fear not man. Then he says, fear God. And he's not done yet, because what do we see in verse 31? Jesus says, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So four references to fear in our text this morning, three fear nots, and one that says, fear God. In other words, three don't fear this, and one that says, fear that. And I hope you see what's happening here. But what Jesus wants to do with the disciples is supplant one fear with another. Namely, he wants to supplant what we would call sinful fear or the fear of man with a very different type of fear, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't want us to get confused about how different these fears are, so let's, let's just talk about what the fear of the Lord is. First, and fundamentally, we need to understand this, that every person in the world is called to fear the Lord. This is true from one end of Scripture to the other. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So you haven't even come into wisdom until you have the fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10 is very helpful in thinking about the fear of the Lord. In this situation, Moses is addressing the people of Israel. Of course, they are about to enter the promised land, but before they enter, Moses is going to make it really clear. If you want to prosper when you get into the land, then this is how you need to conduct yourself. What is he saying? And now, O Israel, verse 12, what does the Lord your God require of you? The first thing he says is, but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. And I think Deuteronomy is especially helpful when we think about the fear of the Lord because the first statement is that they are to fear the Lord your God and every other statement after that then helps to define what it actually means to fear the Lord, right? So what does it mean to fear the Lord? It is to walk in his ways. It is to love him, uh, to serve him, to keep his commandments, to keep his statutes. And we need to be clear about this because most people think of fear only, only in negative terms, right? It's just, it's the natural thing that we do. For instance, as we think about fear, usually we just kind of jump to thinking about the fear that a gazelle has of a lion, or that some sheep have of a wolf, right? But, but that's not even close to the type of fear we are talking about when we're talking about the fear of the Lord. No, the fear of the Lord is probably closest to the fear that a child has of a parent that she loves or respects. Now, most of the time, the relationship between a parent and child is, is good, right? It is one marked by joy, peace, laughter, maybe wrestling around on the floor, having some fun. 
But then there are times when this relationship is a bit interrupted, right? Particularly when a child decides to disobey his or her parent. Now, at the end of the day, whatever has happened between the parent and child, this is what we know, that the parent is still going to love their child, right? You're still going to love your kid when they disobey you. And at the end of the day, all that affection that you have for your child is going to be expressed in that you're still going to feed them, still going to give them things to drink, still going to tuck them in at night, still going to read them bedtime stories. All that's going to happen, right? But there might be a moment in the day when the child is afraid to see you or look in your eyes because they know that they've done something that dishonors you, and they're ashamed of that. That's a closer sense of what it means to fear the Lord. Now, usually our relationship with God is good. In Christ, we have peace with God, right? There's no hostility between us. God looks at us with great affection. But occasionally, when we sin, we dread God's discipline still because of our selfish choices. And we know that God's rules come with certain consequences. Now, at the end of the day, we know we're safe, again, because of what Jesus has done. And therefore, we know his actions are not vindictive, but rather corrective or restorative. Nonetheless, discipline is unpleasant, and we don't want to do anything that would solicit it. So that's what the fear of God is. And ultimately, we need to understand that this, that it's also what faith is. The fear of the Lord and faith, they're synonyms. You can replace them with each other. Faith, you believe God, you respect God, you trust God and what he says. You take him at his word, again, because there are genuine consequences for not keeping his word. And you respect his rules. And you know he has very good reasons for having those rules. Coming back to Matthew then, think of what Jesus is saying. Because he's saying that in order for the disciples to overcome their fear of these hostile men, what must they do? Again, supplant that fear, specifically a fear of man with a greater fear of God. Naturally, we ask, how do you do that though? But I think the example of Jesus is pretty clear here, isn't it? And it is by increasing your view of God. Think about this. When your view of God is small, your problems are gigantic. When your view of God is big, your problems are going to seem much, much smaller. And this is the angle that Jesus takes He's trying to inform the consciences of the disciples so that they have a grander, more beautiful, and more spectacular view of who God is. And we could say he provides three reasons that they are to fear God over anything else. So that's what we're going to look at today. I want us, I, I want us to notice three reasons to fear God over anything else in this text particularly those who try to do you harm. So what are those? Reason number one, we could say is this, God triumphs over all evil. God triumphs over all evil. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. The point that Jesus is making 
is that Christians should not fear those who seek to do them harm because one day truth will triumph and God will expose every wicked, evil plot that was ever made against his people. The irony, of course, is that wicked men, they don't think God's going to take notice at all, do they? They think that they can plot in secret and nobody will ever know. But of course, we know that's not the case. But consider how this goes on. Psalm 94 captures this very well in terms of the wicked thinking they can hide from God. Verse 3, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. He'll never know. He'll, we'll get away with it. He'll never figure this out. All of our dealings here are in private. Speaking against Babylon, God said to them in Isaiah 47, verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. What an arrogant, boastful claim. There is none besides me, but this is the, the pride of wickedness. This is the, the total result of a depraved heart overestimating one's own strength and power. One day, however, the wicked will discover just how wrong they are. We know this. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. One day it's all going to be laid before him. It is right now. But one day you are going to have to give an account for such things. If you think the Lord is not in the know, you are deceived. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. I have a feeling that this week there's going to be some things that come out of your mouth and you go like, why did that come out of my mouth? I didn't expect that. Well, God expected every word that comes out of your mouth. He knows it before you say it. I love later on in Psalm 139, when you get to verse 15, the psalmist can also say, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. We think we're cool today because we have some really cool imagery technology to be able to see a child in the womb. It's not new to God. He's always been able to see right into the womb. The clearest picture that you could possibly imagine. He sees every cell, every atom, every molecule. He sees it at, as all of these things are working and coming together and as the body is constructing itself in the womb. 
Therefore, every wicked doer will be met with great surprise when they stand before God's throne of judgment. There's a story about a prankster who lived in a small town. He sent identical letters to 20 prominent businessmen and leaders in the community. The letters all said the same thing. All is known, flee at once. Surprisingly, 20 of those men left town by the next day. (laughs) This is just an anecdotal story, right? But the point is clear. There are things that people have done in their lives, skeletons in their closet, things they have tried to conceal, but one day it will all be manifest to God. It will all be made known. So this is the first way Jesus encourages his disciples. Guess what? You're safe. Everything's going to be okay. God is going to triumph over evil. Now let's consider another reason he gives to fear God. Secondly, God has power over body and soul. God has power over body and soul. Look at verse 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. This is such a simple point, but to paraphrase what Jesus is saying, you could ultimately say it like this. Don't fear the worst of what people can do to you, because the worst that people can do to you doesn't even come close to the worst that God can do to you. That's ultimately the point. So, sure, can they kill your body? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They can crucify you, burn you, impale you, drown you, starve you. But at the end of the day, think about this. That's all they got. That's just like the worst they could possibly do to you. But God, he's greater than that. Because what can he do? He has the ability to destroy both the body and the soul. To be clear, Jesus is not talking about some idea of annihilation, where somehow in judgment, people cease to exist. Hell is a place of conscious, eternal torment, where God rightly and justly pours out his wrath on sinners. Listen, friends, hell is not to be taken lightly. It is a place that the Bible says is a fiery furnace and a place where the worm never dies. Some have mistakenly thought of hell as kind of Satan's domain. I know when I watch cartoons as a kid, at least that's the depiction that was made of Satan. You know, you go down to hell and he's kind of on his throne and he's holding his pitchfork and, 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 you know, the demons are around him helping him do his job and everything. That's not what hell is. Hell is not Satan's domain. Hell is God's hell. And it's a place where even Satan himself, for his wicked acts and for his rebellion, will suffer for all eternity as God pours out his wrath. Alternatively, though, when we think about this, just as the soul is God's to punish, what also do we know? The soul's is God's to rescue. And God has the power of eternal life, doesn't he? Just like he had the power 
in that moment with the criminal who hung by his side when he said, today you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. Friends, heaven is far better than any other place that we could possibly be. In fact, and maybe you've heard it said this way, that the worst day in heaven, if such a thing could actually occur, would be a million times better than our best day on earth. I love that thought. Think of that. Every one of you have had some days that you've been over the moon, days that change your life, days that carry you during troubled times. Even those days don't hold a candle to the joy of heaven. If you're a student, the day you graduate is going to be pretty exciting, right? Whether it's high school or college, doesn't hold a candle to heaven. The day you get married, the day you have your first child, the joy on those days, as high as they are, will never match the joy we have with Christ. And it seems that probably part of the reason why we don't get excited about heaven is for this very reason. We just don't think about it often enough, do we? Our minds are so occupied with the here and now and what's in front of us. Frankly, sadly, we put our treasure here on earth, don't we? But when you get this, it changes everything. When you get the joy of heaven, the hope of eternal life, the joy of being in Christ's presence, then it doesn't matter what happens to you on this planet. Your heart is beaming with enthusiasm over God's grace and kindness. We studied through Philippians. It seems like an eon ago, but you just have to love how Paul, in the midst of his cell, in the midst of his prison, says it like this. He says, what then? Only in that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You want to kill me? Go ahead and do it. It's gain for me. You don't want to kill me? Still going to be profitable for me. Still going to continue to live my life glorifying Christ. Going to continue to follow his plan. Going to continue to be productive and helpful to the church and help people come to the knowledge of God and see people get saved and transformed. I'm good with that too. Which is better though? It would be far better far better for me to be with Christ. Think of it again like this. If you're a Christian, this life is the worst you're ever going to have it. Right? This is as bad as it gets. And I get that there are so many low times. Maybe you're in one right now. Cling to Christ. This is the worst it's getting, and he is a present help in your time of need. And he stands at the ready to empower you, to give you the wisdom that you need for whatever you are facing. Similarly, 
And we think of this in a, in a real tragic way, right? But you think about that, and similarly, this is the closest to hell that those who don't know Christ, or this is the closest to hell that, that you as a Christian will ever be, and, and alternatively, this is the closest to heaven that un, non-Christians will ever be. This is the best they have it. This is their home. No wonder that they are trying to enjoy it to the best of their abilities, because soon it will be gone. So this is the encouragement that, that Jesus is providing to his disciples. God triumphs over evil, first. Secondly, God has power over body and soul. But third, and finally, what other way does he encourage them? Reason number three, that they are to fear him. God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over everything. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, a moment ago, we obviously reflected on God's omniscience. The fact that God knows everything, everywhere, all the time. But now, we come to another attribute of God. And what is it? Namely, his sovereignty. Which we could set as exercised by his will of decree. God's will of decree, maybe that's a new term for you, new idea for you. You could also think of it as God's secret will, God's hidden will. No matter what you call it, though, this is what we mean by it. How God brings about his perfect, good, and pleasing will to pass in everything that happens on earth. Friend, think about it like this. Nothing happens, nothing, without God planning it, ordaining it, decreeing it, and permitting it. We don't necessarily understand this. It is beyond our full comprehension, but this is the clear teaching of Scripture. In everything, God brings about his perfect and pleasing will. He accomplishes his will in very direct ways, such as when he performs miracles, like when Israel crosses the Red Sea, but many times he acts in very indirect ways, such as through the agency of other people or things. And in fact, one of the best examples that we could reflect on, particularly this week, but it's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Think about this. Luke writes in Acts, Men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter preaching, of course, in Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Two things going on here, perfectly compatible with each other. Jesus is ultimately delivered up, we are told, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So if you ask the question, who put Jesus on the cross, we would ultimately say God did. Yet at the same time, what also is true? That God used human agency. And even in his sovereign plan allowed for the wicked actions of men to do exactly what he had foreordained to be done. And so just as he put Jesus on the cross, Luke can say of those in Jerusalem, the Jews who he is preaching to, you crucified and killed this man. 
you did this. God did this, but you did this. And you are guilty for what you have done, and God will hold you accountable for those things. But you can't escape being part of God's plan. It will be executed and fulfilled perfectly. And for this reason, we should say with Paul in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. The fact is that nothing escapes the providential governance of God's decree, whether ends, means, contingencies, desires, choices, or even the good and evil actions of men. And notice how this is communicated by Jesus here, but he talks about two sparrows being sold for a penny. The context is that sparrows were the cheapest thing that a poor person could buy at the market to eat. In fact, sparrows were so inexpensive that the cost of them was the value of the smallest coin in the Roman world, literally one-sixteenth of a denarius. Now, some of you know that a denarius was the wage that you would get for a full day's work, right? So what we see here, ultimately, is that sparrows are sold for the equivalent of less than an hour's wage. That's how inexpensive they were. Given the supply of sparrows then, and their extremely inexpensive costs, we wouldn't expect anyone, really, right? Especially God, to notice when two sparrows were out of existence, right? But does he? Absolutely. For Jesus says that not even two of them fall from the sky without taking notice. Tell me, do you notice the sparrows? Probably not, right? Because they are more than we could possibly count. And beyond that, they're tiny little creatures, often hidden from our sight. We don't see them in their nests, typically. We don't watch them feed their young. Like, we never really have a moment when the sparrows occupy maybe more than a couple seconds of our mind. And that's when they're flying around our heads. But this is different from God, because at any given moment, he knows where every sparrow is at any moment, where they are going, what they are doing, what they are wanting, and even when they die. Similarly, Jesus says that God knows every hair on our head. I think I'm safe to ask this question, but how many of you numbered your hairs? By the way, this poll excludes those that are bald and shave their head. None of you, right? You've never counted up your hairs. You've never asked your you know, salon person, also known as a barber. <laughs> the things you say. Well, could you give me my hair back so I can count how many there were? But God knows every single one of the hairs on your head. This means, of course, that God is not distant or removed. He is not caught by surprise over anything. He's not ignorant or apathetic to the affairs of the world and certainly not apathetic to the affairs of your life. On the contrary, he is keenly aware of every single detail, even down to what we would consider to be the most insignificant details, sparrows and hair. All of this is important to reflect on because what's the point Jesus drives home? Fear not, you are of much more value than sparrows. Listen, friend, do you hear this? Even with the care God gives to the sparrow, 
even with the attention it receives, does it even compare to his attentiveness over your life? Never. You are of much more value to God if you are in Christ Jesus. And this is because, of course, what happens through faith in Christ, that God himself adopts you into his family. And he makes you his very own child. Friends, this is the greatest gift that God could possibly give us. The fact that we could be forgiven, redeemed, and restored to a living and abiding relationship with him. This is the good news that's been given to us. Do you know it? Have you believed in it? Have you turned from your sin and received the free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Oh, I pray that that would be the case for you. If not, there is certainly nothing to expect but God's judgment. He does not desire that any should perish, but that all all would believe in Jesus Christ. And this is not the first time, thinking back to this care that God has, this is not the first time we've encountered this either, right? Because what did we encounter when we went through the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So God, he... Jesus encourages these disciples that God triumphs over evil. And he encourages them about how God has power over body and soul. And he encourages them that God is sovereign over everything. And therefore, what was to be their takeaway and to be our primary takeaway? I want you to go back to verse 27. Jesus says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus is saying, what I want you to do is I want you to take everything that you ever, ever heard me say. Even when we were sitting around the house and we were just talking at the end of the day, nobody else was around and it wasn't super busy. I want you to take what I have given you and I want you to announce it to the world. And in fact, I want you to announce it so publicly. I want you to go to a housetop. Housetops and in those days, they had a pretty good platform on top of it. We kind of talked about this when we talked about the paralytic who was lowered in through the roof, right? But there was an access to the roof, and you could get on the roof, and of course that makes a pretty nice pulpit area where you can stand up and you can declare publicly and loudly whatever you want to say. Jesus says, do that with my message. So here's the question for you. If you know Christ, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Believe it or not, God's highest concern is actually not your personal and physical safety. It's tough for us to get our minds around that, but it's true. 
And even as we look back at the last couple of years and how quickly people would be to eliminate our ability to gather and, and worship God, that's the truth that comes to bear. Did you know there's something more of a concern for God than your physical health? And it is knowing Christ, and it is telling the entire world about who he is, isn't it? I pray this week that God would provide you with a great many opportunities to do this, to tell the world about Jesus. It is fascinating to think. Here we're about 2,000 years removed, right, from, from the work of Christ. And still, at this time of the year, people are curious. And, and, and they seem to be aware of this great spectacular event that happened 2,000 years ago, but they've never realized that the gift of that moment is still available right now. Dear friends, if that's you, again, if you have not trusted in Christ, then may this week be the week. May today be the day because salvation is available today and all you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.